0: podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Thursday, January 28th, still in a holding pattern right now in the professional tennis world, all of us eagerly awaiting the start of the action in Australia, both ATP and WTA events scheduled to get underway on Monday. Of course, we're still wondering if all of the events are going to start on time, plenty of off-the-court drama related to the COVID protocols that we have talked about on the this show so of course we will continue to monitor that as we get excited for the action to begin on court of course we here at Cracked Rackets very excited to head to Stillwater next weekend for our coverage of the 2021 Division 1 Women's National Indoor Events we will be live on the scene calling all of the matches interviewing hopefully the coaches and players in a COVID friendly way and you know providing all of that information on the ground that all of you college tennis fans are looking for for But given we have a bit of a lull in the action, we wanted to sneak in a little bit more 2021 preview content for all of you listeners and talk about a topic near and dear to our hearts on the mini break over these next two days. That, of course, is American Men's Tennis. And, you know, it's such an interesting place right now in American Men's Tennis. You sort of have three generations all jockeying to work their way to the top. You have the Isners, the Queries, the Steve Johnsons holding on to their places in the top one you have guys like Sandra and Kudla and Marcos Girone what are they going to do in the primes of their careers and then of course you have so many ascending young talents as well Fritz Opelka Tiafo mo Nakashima Corda the spider man such a great time to be an American men's tennis fan and you know we wanted to talk about what it's what your feelings are right now as an American men's tennis fan we wanted to talk about some of the guys we are most looking forward to seeing compete this season and that is why I brought on crack Rackets contributor Judson wall to Play another game of buy, sell, hold with some of our most interesting players heading into this season. Again, we try to hit all of the various categories. I sent Judson a list of about twenty-five players. I said, Hey, pick two of each. And so we're gonna go through about ten different players in a two-part podcast. Part one you're going to be hearing today. At the beginning, we are going to give some context where we're at in American Men's Tennis, and then again we're gonna get to I think our first five players in terms of buying, selling, and holding on part two which you'll be able to hear tomorrow. We're going to give our predictions for how American men do during this 2021 season, what the top 10 American men list looks like come the end of the year. It's a very fun podcast. I know all of you listeners will enjoy, of course. The reason we're able to do it day in, day out, because of the support you all give us, because of the support we get from our Patreon family, and of course because of the support we get From our friends at Midwest Sports, it's simple, folks. If you're looking for a good deal, you want the best equipment in the business, go to MidwestSports.com. You're going to find Nike. You're going to find Wilson, Adidas, Babylon, Head, all of it there, all the best prices as well. You use our promo code CRACKED15, you'll get 15% off your order, free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75, and best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. You'll also let them know we sent you there by using that promo code SO. Go to MidwestSports.com, use that promo code CR15. With that in mind, let's get to my conversation buying, selling, and holding some of the top American men's players heading into this 2021 season with Crack Rackets contributor Judson Wall. Joining us on the podcast today, you know him as the Pied Piper of the Daily Match Pick'em. You also may know him as our newest contributor at Crack Rackets, the writer of the Weekly Review Preview. I know him as Tennyson Aloha, or my friend, Judson Wall. Judson, welcome back to the show. How are you doing, my friend?
1: Thank you, good sir. I'm doing great, doing great. Uh, just watched Korda get a win, and and Quimper, he's a, he's a match away from joining the top 100, and... You know, that's kind of a good segue into what we're doing today, right?
0: beautiful segue. You set me up perfectly for Sebastian Corda Going to be outside the realms of our conversation but as I mentioned in the intro we're going to play another round of Buy, Sell, Hold on today's podcast. Now, the difference between this one and our previous edition, we are going to focus just on the American men because it's a fascinating time in American men's tennis right now. Clearly, a generational shift on our hands. You see guys in the top 100 like Taylor Fritz, Riley Opelka, Tommy Paul, Francis Tiafo, as you mentioned, Sebastian Corda, 20 years old, one win away now from the top 100. All of those guys under the age of 25. And then, of course, you've got guys like J.J. Wolf, Brandon Nakashima, Michael Moe, all still very yet well young as well, all on the precipice of the top 100. Of course, you still have other guys. John Isner, he doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Jack Sock, how healthy can he be? And all the guys we see week in, week out competing with Mike Keishin on the USTA Pro circuit. Uh, certainly those guys are still in the mix as well. So there are plenty of people for us to talk about today. And again, we're going to go through the 10 guys we deemed the most interesting heading into this 2021 season. We're going to say whether we are buying, selling, or holding on them. I gave Judson explicit instructions before the podcast. Don't hold back. If you disagree with me, if I say something stupid as I am bound to do over the course of this two-part podcast, let me know why I'm being stupid. And of course, again, Judson has written about these uh, all of these players. You are going to get to learn more about them, learn more about this series Judson has developing for the year later on in the show. Uh, With that in mind, before we get into any specific player, I am curious, Judson, because I think our listeners know my thoughts on where American men's tennis stands right now, but as someone who... You know, I'll say you're a little bit older than me, so perhaps you got to see a little bit more of that Sampras-Agassi generation dominate. I bet you remember Andy Roddick's U.S. Open title a little bit better than I do. Certainly, I've seen the YouTube highlights, but if you ask me, did I watch the match in person, the answer is no. Um, But to see that generation to what has happened the past, you know, 17 years now, still no Grand Slam men's singles title uh, for American men's tennis your thoughts on where American men's tennis stands heading into this 2020s decade?
1: Well, first of all, Chris, I'm not that old. (laughs) No, I, uh,
0: um, I didn't say Michael
1: Chang. I said Andy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm not, yeah, I'm more, I I got into tennis around the Roddick days. Um, you know, I, uh, I wasn't really around. I remember seeing maybe Agassi or Sampras kind of on sports center, but, uh, you know, I wasn't really into tennis at that time. I was into probably, you know, Pokemon, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, mid thirties here. So I'm not that old, but one thing I have done, um, is I've watched a lot of classic tennis. Uh, you know, I've, I have this project on ongoing project that, you know, where I, um, I started in 1968 at the start of the open era and I just watch important matches in chronological order, kind of follow the tour each year from 68, and I've made my way into the 90s. So I've watched a lot of classic tennis, and a lot of classic tennis is American tennis. And to go from that to where we're at now is a little depressing for an American tennis fan, to be totally honest, although there might be light at the end of the tunnel, and, you know, kind of get into that today. But, um, you know, we had... At the beginning of the open era, it was really Australia and ourselves were the two tennis powers. And then after Laver and Rosewall uh, and a couple other guys kind of fell off, got old in the 70s, we continued to stay up top with guys like Jimmy Connors and John McEnroe, you know, uh, two of the greatest in the game, especially at that time. Uh, and they just, them along with Bjorn Borg. Yvonne Lindell, you know, they were at always at the top of the game. So America always had a stronghold up there. And then when McEnroe got a little older and, and Connors retired, you had Sampras and Agassi to take up that mantle, uh, you know, and that continued all the way until really kind of Roddick was the last vestige of that. And then now, you know, uh, you look at the American rankings and current day, we don't have anyone in the top twenty. Which is incredible, you know. When I go back and look at the top twenty from some of those classic years that I follow, you know, right now I'm in 1991, and I think I counted there were like, there were like eleven Americans in the top twenty, you know, or something like that. Uh, it's crazy. We don't have a single top twenty player. John Isner's still our top player. He's ranked twenty fourth in the world right now. So, uh, you know, from a from an historical perspective. American tennis is, it you know, is certainly in the, in the trough, in the, you know, the peak and trough kind of, kind of timeline. It's certainly in the trough, could be peaking again. We don't know. Uh, you know, we're still a, a a huge country, 330, 340 million people, you know, some of them are bound to play tennis <laughs> and, um, and they are, you know, we have a good young crop coming up and we'll talk about that. You know, as we go through the pod,
0: yeah. Now, can I just say to anyone who's wondering why do we bring Judson on the pod? We got trough, we got vestige, all in one answer. I'm more of a zenith and Nadir sort of guy myself, but I understand why you went with trough instead. (laughs) I think that was a good uh, word selection and. Yeah, I mean, look, you want to go back to 2015, the start of the 2015 season, just for an even more immediate perspective. And by the way, for all of our listeners out there, if you want a crash course in the history of American men's tennis, our first season of the Inside Out podcast, which I know some of you haven't listened to yet, we covered who is the best American male tennis player at any given point in the open air. And we talked about that history, how different things are now compared to where they were years ago when, you know, you had guys like Jimmy Aris or Steve Denton or the Billy Martins of the world or the Paul Harhooses of the world who just kind of found themselves in, you know, the top 50 just by, uh, you know, the Scott Lipsky's just by uh, virtue of being pros, right? And so, um, or not Scott Lipsky, the Paul Goldstein, excuse me, and, you know, it, it it's so interesting because you go back to 2015 there were 5 Americans in the top 100 it was Isner query Johnson stock uh, sock and Donald young and obviously uh, that was the trough the Nadir for American men's tennis that era the Ryan sweetings of the world unfortunately the Donald Youngs the Evan Kings just not quite living to the billing of the previous generation none of those guys becoming staples in the top 50 and you know again they're 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 all very very good accomplished professional players but the history of American men's tennis usually dictated that at least one player in the top 10 was American if not one in the top 10 certainly three or four in the top 20 to 30 and obviously that hasn't been the case as much these past five years now you look where American men's tennis is heading into this 2021 season a far more healthy place than it has been before because you do have the existence of the established veterans like Isner and Query and at this point Johnson at 31 in the top 100 you have the veterans of the world like the tennis sand Grins and the Marcos Girones and the Dennis Kudlas who are still in their mid-20s and more often than not right now at least inside the top 20 and then of course uh, in the top 100 excuse me and then of course you have all of the young guys so certainly yes that is the backdrop for where we find ourselves entering this 2021 season for any of you wondering at home there are currently nine Americans in the top 100 which isn't great Again, that's not the numbers you would see in the 80s, in the 90s, in those first few years of the 2000s, but it's also the reality of the sport we live in, how uh, how international the sport is now, how it's not just Americans competing for the biggest prizes, but obviously uh, you have the existence of Federer, Djokovic, Nadal, and countless other players across the world competing for Grand Slams. So... Yeah, it's, you know, again, before we get into any specific player, any final context you would add to heading into 2021, I would say if if you're an American tennis fan, do we have a Grand Slam champion amongst us? tough to say, but certainly optimistic heading into 2021.
1: I'm unsure. Uh, I'm, I'm,
0: uh,
1: you know, more bullish about the future than I have been in a while. And and those are, you know, we have a good group of young guys coming up that, that have that potential. They hold that body type. They have the pedigree. You know, guys like Korda. Uh, we have a good group of juniors that we might get to talk about later on. You know, uh, t- we have three or four world top juniors. Martin Dom Zachary Zvaida, Toby Kodat, um, and, uh, you know, Emilia Nava is another one. So, you know, if we're going to have a future number 1, I think it's going to come from that group or potentially a guy like Corda. I don't know if I see Corda getting that high or not, but he he has the body type, the pedigree, you know, he's only 20 and he's already making waves. He has the potential to be a top 10 guy at least, and if you're top 10, you can you can win a, sw- a slam, particularly after the big 3 retire, you know. Um so but here's a little bit of context for you and then you know we can move on if you want but uh you know the U- the u.s has won 32 davis cups um and i, I don't re- recall i think they started playing them you know right around the start of the century 1900s um you know so i i think they've played a- around a hundred of them I and mean, you U.S. has won 32 of them we are which is by far the most, a few more than Australia and then, and then by far more than anyone else. And, you know, so historically, the U.S. is such a tennis power. It would be great for us to get back there.
0: Mm -hmm. No, I mean, you talk about all of the Grand Slams that have happened in the history of men's tennis, of course. uh, I think there have now been around 600 uh, men's singles, doubles, and mixed doubles champions, and, you know, America has won about a third of them, over 200 of the Grand Slam titles that have come from a man in the Open Era. It's been an American man. And so obviously, though, you look of late. Yeah, we've still had the Bryan brothers, Jack Sock, Rajiv, Varam, and others contribute in that doubles category. But obviously, since Andy Roddick, there hasn't been anyone heading in uh, who's added in that singles category. And, you know, for the record, heading into the conversation, we can start getting into some of these players. We just talked about Sebastian Corda, Brandon Nakashima, J.J. Wolf as part of our next-gen ATP 2.0 series. I think those are three guys unequipped. Judson, you and I would say we are buying on, and you can correct me if I'm wrong there. Um, but, you know, we talked about them. Uh, David Gertler joined me on that incident. So if you want to hear more about those players, where they are at heading into the 2021 season, be sure to go check those podcasts out. We're also going to leave out Jensen Brooksby, who we were fortunate enough to have on the show just because he's been injured. But I think he's another young guy, certainly, uh, we both still believe in and is someone we uh, have a lot of uh, hopes can make a dent now that he's healthy back on tour here in 2021. I will give you a chance. Those four guys, unequivocal buys, right? Right now in American tennis, if you are looking for a next Grand Slam champion, you probably take those four over the field.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think you're right. Um, yeah, you and David do a did a great job sufficiently covering those guys, you know. Um, and I would buy all of them to varying degrees, although they are all pretty strong buys for me uh you know there's a couple i like more than the others but uh yeah um all four buys who knows about jensen brooksby you know uh he showed a lot of promise with his u.s open run in 2019 but then went to college didn't play any had injuries so injuries like with everyone like with every young player are going to play play a role potentially uh jj wolf just had surgery on his stomach uh so we'll see how that goes you know but, um, you know, Court is going strong. He's young. He's healthy. And, uh, you know, I think JJ, once he gets back in there, same with Brooksby, they're all, you know, nothing but going up for now.
0: No, I appreciate you saying that about the podcast. Yeah. I mean, look, all... I think four of those guys have come on the Cracked Interviews podcast at some point. Yeah, I think all four of them have. So certainly uh, we are fans of them here at Cracked Rackets. And yeah, again, I mean, Corda keeps winning. We You mentioned it at the top of this podcast. He's one win away from the top 100. If you're not buying Sebastian Corda stock, I mean, uh. I guess let's make the first joke, right? He's the Reddit, you know, he's the Reddit thread. Everyone's like, buy the Sebastian Korda stock and screw over the hedge funds. We'll yeah, get he's that GameStop. joke out of the way here early. There it is. He's GameStop. Yeah, that, we'll get that joke out of the way early. Nakashima's AMC and then, you know, the Spider Man is like Best Buy or whatever you want to say. <laughs> um, but anyways, with that in mind, let's get into our first candidate for buy, sell, hold. So, Jetson, we agreed to divide these players into four categories. I guess I should say I said, hey, I'm dividing them into four categories of players because there's a bunch of players. You know, there are the four different stages right now heading into the 2021 season. There are the veterans, like we mentioned, the Isners, the the Queries, the Johnson Socks of the world. There are the odd spots, those guys who are, you know, in their middle 20s and either top 75 or right on the outskirts of the top 100. Think Sandgren, Girone, Fratangelo, McDonald. There's the Kalamazoo 14 crew. That's all the next-gen guys. And then there are the guys on the precipice right now still competing in challengers. They're at the ITF level looking to make a big jump here in 2021. Let's start with a guy who has made maybe the biggest jump in American men's tennis over these past two seasons. You look at what Marcos Girone has done since the start of 2019, Judson. And look, he was really, really good during that 2019 season. He started the year off by winning the title in Orlando. I believe ended his season with another title as well in Houston. I believe there was a semifinal in Cleveland along the way where he lost a three-set match to Max Cressy, but you look for him. He was 49-26 and in, uh, in that 2019 season. Of course, made the big run at Indian Wells as well. Last season, got to play a few more ATP events and actually had success at those ATP events. You look at what he was able to do 9-9, nine I think overall on the ATP tour, but of course qualified and then made it the round of 16 in Paris to end his season. Marcos Guerrero current ranking of number 73 to enter the year. He's 27 years old. My question to you, Judson, you buying, you selling, you holding on Marcos Giron heading into 2021.
1: I, I like Marcus, Marcus's game. Um, you know, he's a former national champion uh, at the college level and like you said in your intro it was a great intro by the way so much information um he uh yeah he, he had his he's since college you know uh, those guys that stay in college for four years things like that they like like a like a garon. they uh you know come in a little later than than normal guys so he was 23 24 by the time he starts playing you know challenger ball so he's uh, I believe he's 27 now I think he just turned 27 uh and just now getting up into that ATP tour area and so that's the one kind of hold uh aspect to him that that I have is he's he's 27 now but he doesn't have a lot of miles on the legs when it comes to playing you know week in week out tour ball and so he should be fresh uh he's hungry and uh, I love his game he's so clean to watch uh his footwork is is nearly impeccable um for me marcos is uh, is a buy he's a buy for me i think he'll improve his ranking now i do think he has a ceiling uh you know i think he he's not he's not a big guy he's not too tall you know um so he's probably pretty close to maxed out with his serve uh although i haven't done you know like a technical study on it but just my my feeling about him um you know and and at times when he plays the big dogs you know you can see the lack of weapons whenever what the type of weapons that it takes to beat those type of guys but i think he has the game to hold up against players that you know are ranked 30 to 100 and so right now he's ranked in the 70s i could see him getting up into the 50s the 40s maybe the 30s so for me. He's a slight buy.
0: Yeah, look, for Marcos Girone, it's worth pointing out, as you mentioned, was an NCAA champion at UCLA, and I've had this conversation too many times on this podcast, how that UCLA team with him, Clay Thompson. So, listen to this. They had two top 100 players, Mackie McDonald and Marcos Girone, playing two in three singles for them, justifiably, and they didn't win and the national win title. The- It just, it will forever baffle me, Judson, how that UCLA team ended up losing. And I've talked to Carousel about it. He gets furious. He's like, yeah, you talked to the USC team that won the national title in 2014. They say we were the better team. And they were the better team. And anyways, conversation for another time. He goes pro after winning that NCAA singles title in 2014. And you're right, I think he joins the pro tour then at 21 years old. But he's also a guy who I think at this point of his career has two Different hips in his body, has had hip replacement on both sides of the hip, and suffered a lot of injuries early in his career. And, you know, that slowed him down because right out of the bat, 2014, he wins a Futures title in March. He makes a final in November. Doesn't make another Futures final until 2016. And then in 2017, he really started to take off five Futures finals there, uh, gets banged up again heading into 2018, goes and, you know, a, and serves as volunteer assistant at UCLA for a season just to get his body right, and then just has come out of the gates uh, since the start of that 2019 season and perhaps the most important thing has stayed healthy and has looked you know so good over the course of those runs and in particular you look at what he's done over his last 52 weeks Judson 20 and 11 overall most if I think all but one of those matches coming at the ATP level and I think the only non-ATP level event he played was the Indian Wells Challenger where he lost to Brandon Nakashima in three sets and again that That's an ATP level match, but for him, you know, he gets the win at the US Open in five sets, so he has that under his belt. Gets another five set win, eight six in I believe eight six in the fifth at Roland Garros as well. So back to back first round paychecks for him in his pocket, quarterfinals in Antwerp, and then round of sixteen in Paris. You're absolutely right. He is a guy whose game is trending in every correct direction, but I don't know, you look at some of the numbers. And that's why you you talk about buying versus holding and that ceiling on Marcos Girón. I might have to hold because you look over his last 52 weeks, he's made 62% of his first serves. He's won 71% of those first serve points. When you watch him play, is he a guy who jumps out to you and you just think this is a guy with an elite serve or is that you know, partially just a product of him playing so many indoor hardcourt matches over the, you know, stretch of these past 52 weeks, I think... It's a little bit of both, and so I still need to see. You know, how real is that serve as a weapon? As you mentioned, you know, the game, the footwork. I think he's going to have the footwork and the athleticism to translate across surfaces. Now, I do think his ground strokes can get a little bit short, and they sit a little bit on clay. And you look for him; he's only played thirty-eight matches on clay in his career, and given he's played about five hundred pro matches, that less than ten percent of them have been on clay. That's concerning, and that's going to make it difficult to rise higher than the top 60 just from a rankings and event standpoint. If you're not winning ATP matches on clay, you have to go play challenger matches, or you're struggling, uh, you're just not going to accumulate the rate of points you need to to continue to progress. That's my biggest question mark for Giron, and that's why I'm holding on him heading into 2021. Because what does he look like on another surface, Judson? We've seen bits and pieces here. I think you look on his resume. No, I think every final of his has come on a hard court. I I, I still have questions about does his game translate to a non hard court surface? That's <clears throat> that's going to be a question with.
1: Most, if not almost all, of those young Americans, particularly the ones that played in college, because of course they don't touch the clay, you know, uh, for four years if they play all four years. And and thank you for reminding me; I forgot, uh, you know, that Garon did have those surgeries. I was wondering why he was. I I, I forgot. I was forgetting why he was so old uh, when he he started making his run here. Um, but yeah, I think that's a great point you make. In fact, I am, <laughs> you know, I I see the hold. I see the whole perspective um, and and I was tempted to go that way too I just like his game so much I think that he he does have the the possibility of getting up into that you know 30 40 kind of range sort of where Tommy Paul or you know uh, a Kechmenoichch kind of type is right now but um, but yeah he is limited you know because I do think his game is not great for the clay uh, not only is his game not built. Uh, you know for the clay I don't think but he doesn't have any experience on it basically because like we were saying you know grew up in America played college ball you know when's he ever playing on clay Um, and so I think that's a great point that is that is a drawback or definitely especially a potential hold uh, aspect you know for for Marcos there
0: hmm And even if you want to narrow it to since he's been healthy, what have his results been on clay? So we'll go since the start of that 2019 season until now, and it really hasn't been that thorough of a sample size. You know, you would have loved to see him play more matches, and obviously some of that's pandemic-related, but he's 6-8 and eight in clay court matches. You know, he beats Halise the first round of Roland Garros, but other than the fact that it was played three out of five sets, that's a match that legitimately could have been a first round of a challenger, right? If I told you Giron plays Helis the first round of aon Provence, you would have believed me, Judson. And like I'm not saying that's a bad win, but then he goes and plays Diego Montiero, who's unequivocally a step up in the next round. And obviously you play a five set, you're gonna be fatigued, but Montiero looked pretty comfortable throughout the course of that match and then you know again it's just like okay he made the semi-final of the Sarasota Challenger in April he beat Rindernach Laxonin and Corda Corda at the time which was is on green like 18 clay. years old. Yeah, but exactly you you beat me to my point there but that's green clay. That's not red clay. These ATP level events which he now has the ranking to get into uh, will be on red clay and I am fascinated if you're him that's a big decision. Do You go play challengers on the green clay or on red clay elsewhere try and find your bearings or or do you take advantage of your ranking? go get some paychecks, and even if it's a first round loss uh go play a t p level events That's my biggest question for him is he's at a really interesting point ranking wise as well and I think you know here in the Australian summer, as we get back towards hard courts that answer speaks for itself with the way his rankings protected he's a guy you absolutely circle come the summer uh, portion of the season because of just how good he is on the run and the way he's able to move that backhand around the court move his forehand around the court and just guy seems like a gamer um but I do have some concerns, again, about the early portions of the year, how he translates uh, or, you know, what scheduling decisions he makes. And obviously you're the scheduling expert. So curious on your thoughts here and maybe what you expect to see from him in 2021.
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, that great points you're bringing up that I hadn't really considered. And uh, yeah, he is right at that that level. He's ranked 73. That is good enough to get into most – Uh, ATP 250 main draws if not the main draw at least qualifying Um, and so he will have that option to travel to Europe after Miami this year and he'll probably stay uh, let's see he's down in Australia so after Australia he will come to America I would assume uh, and you know or at some point come to America and play in Miami play that stretch of ball and then he'll have a decision to make, go over to Europe and play on the red stuff or stay at home where there might be, a, you know, one or two hard court challengers. There's those three in normal years anyway, green court challengers right in a row, uh, green clay court challengers, I should say. And, you know, the, the green clay is it, it it plays differently than the red clay. It's quicker than the red clay. It's almost like a, a hybrid of hard court and clay court. Uh, you know, the ball doesn't bounce up as high on the green clay as it does on the red clay. The red clay is just that fine crushed brick green clay. I don't know if you've ever been on one. Uh, I played on one for the first time last winter and you know, it's just, it's pretty hard packed in there uh, with just a kind of a, a, dusting of, you know, whatever the green stuff is on top, but it's almost like a, a slippery hardcore, you know? And so it does play differently. I'm curious which way he's going to go. I would like to see him do sort of what Fritz did last year. And I think, I think in the long run, it helped Taylor out, Uh, you know, Fritz sort of bucked the trend of the young Americans who would normally not go over to your Europe during the clay season until the very last minute, you know, say for Rome, right before the right before Roland Garros, they would stay in America, play hard courts, play those green clay challengers. You know, but Taylor Fritz and 2019 bucked that trend he went over there right at the beginning right from monte carlo he went straight from miami to monte carlo played monte carlo played barcelona played madrid played rome and he had a good clay season pretty good clay season i mean it wasn't you know spectacular but he had a pretty nice clay season and uh you know since that time that's really been i think he was ranked maybe in the 50s at that point And he's done done nothing but climb in the rankings since then. And present day, he's U.S. number two. Uh, He's ranked uh, 30th. And so I think that move helped him. him. I'd like to see Garong do do something similar, even if, like you say, it does result in some Ls. Uh, It's about the learning experience, I think. So I'd like to see him go over there and do that. I don't know that he will, though.
0: No, again, he has a very interesting uh, decision to make. For him to be in the top 100, I think, is something all of us can be so uh, excited about, again, given all the injuries he has gone through. But I would say a whole just last thought of him. You're a buy? You're buying your own into 2021? You've almost talked me out of it. But I think
1: think he's strong enough on on the hard courts. Uh, We'll see what he does on clay. I I do. I am skeptical. But I'm going to stick with my— my slight buy there. I'm not buying him if he goes any higher, you know, but I'm going to stick with my slight buy. I think he can get up. I think he can hit top 50.
0: That's fair. I, again, I'm rooting for you to be correct. I will say in the spirit of push back at me when you think I'm wrong, me almost convincing you that you're wrong. Uh, yeah, oh, I know. I know. I <laughs> no, I'm just messing with you. Um, no. All right. Well, let's go to a guy who I think we're both going to have in the buy category. Guy we talk about oh so often here on our Cracked Rackets podcast. And maybe the American who we have circled as the guy with the most – Potential to win a Grand Slam title someday, and that's Riley Opelka, who continues his steady ascension up the ATP rankings. Opelka going to be ranked number forty heading into this 2021 season of course you look for the 23 year old won his second ATP title in 2020 winning in Delray Beach three-set final over Yoshi Nishioka and if you remember that day they had to play both the semifinals and finals on the same day so for Opelka to get the win there uh, not only over Nishioka but over Milos Raonic I believe in three sets in the morning uh, that was a really impressive day for Opelka now of course you look uh for him, the things he started to do better last season. Did we get the big breakthrough run at the Grand Slam? No. Unfortunately, two first-round losses for him, but pretty tough draws, right, at the U.S. Open and Roland Garros. He gets David Goffin round one at the U.S. Open after he made the quarterfinals of the Western and Southern. Uh, then he played Jack Sack, who looked really good in the French Open and someone we'll talk about a little bit later. You know, was it great down the home stretch, didn't play in Paris, and, you know, corner final lost, uh, or excuse me, first round lost to Fritz in Antwerp. Given it's indoors, you probably like to see Opelka win that match, but I'll get into the stats of why I'm buying on Riley Opelka in a little bit. Curious to hear first, Judson, heading into this season, Riley Opelka, a buy, sell, or hold for you.
1: You gotta go with buy with, uh, with Opelka because, just because of that ceiling he has, uh, it's a very high ceiling her um, And uh, I mean, it, but it is, though, uh, if, if things go right for Opelka, he and not the fellas that we mentioned earlier is our best hope at a Grand Slam champion, in my opinion. But that is mm-hmm. that's is That's if things go perfectly for him, things if, probably will not. Uh, he's you know, he's dealing with a nagging injury pretty much, you know, every three, four months. He hasn't had a, a serious one just yet, to my knowledge, uh, or at least not recently. But uh, you know, at that height, with his movement, he does move very well for his height. You, you, you just wait for it almost. You know, you wait for him to to pull a, kind of an isner and hurt his foot with all that weight on it, or you know, his knees are 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 constant issues. Well, that big man has a big back. Is it going to get hurt? You know. And so, definitely, his potential is a huge buy. Huge buy. Uh, You know, if he stays healthy for the next ten years, he's going to spend most of that ten years in the top twenty, and a lot of it, probably a good good amount of it, in the top ten. But you know, I, I just wonder if he's going to stay healthy. So that's obviously the main concern that I have. Another one is going back to you know our previous conversation with. Your own, um, you know, uh, we'll see what he does on the clay. Um, you know, obviously, he's he's best on the hard courts, but uh, you know, he does have he does have some results on the clay. Well, he did not play a single, I don't think he played a single clay match uh last year, you know,
0: obviously, he did not. Uh, he played one the French Open,
1: okay, did yeah. Uh, obviously it was a shortened season due to the pandemic and we you know missed a lot of the clay season uh but he didn't he hardly played on the surface so that's that's another you know issue that and uh you know is the potential injury issues but just going by his potential he's got to be a big buy i think
0: the thing for me about riley opelka and I continue to make this point, but the trend continues to exist in the numbers. You look at his skill set, and the obvious comparison is John Isner, but just by passing the eye test, it's very, very clear Riley Opelka is a better tennis player than John Isner is. His forehand—oh, maybe not the forehand, but you watch Riley Opelka hit a backhand, and I, I, like, I don't care who you are. It's an impressive shot. You're like, oh man, the way he drives through this sh- sh- uh, stroke, particularly the backhand return, how condensed it is, his ability to just almost block that ball, but because of his size, his strength, the depth he's able to get, he's a better returner than John Esner. Yeah, the forehand's funky and it's big, but obviously when he's ripping it he can hit that power level that no one else can hit and for someone his size his ability to move around the court is really really impressive uh now of course I think he will continue to get better as a volleyer and I think he has gotten better as a volleyer. but the number I will continue to point out for Riley Opelka in comparison to John Isner and there are some numbers for Opelka that are finally starting to uh, catch up and you look all these numbers coming from tennis abstract you look at ace percentage what percentage of hit the serves he is hitting it are an ace, and for so long I continued to say, well, you know, for Opelka, I think he can continue to get better on serve because you know you just watch it and you feel like he's leaving a few miles per hour on the table, or that sometimes that second serve just floats on him a little bit. Well, he had unequivocally his best season of his career uh, over these past two years. He was twenty. He went from averaging about a nineteen percent ace percentage on serve to a twenty-four percent ace percentage over these past two seasons. His first serve make percentage has steadily risen from 58% back in 2016 all the way up to 65% in the 20 matches he played last season. Now, you hear that 65% number. You think that's pretty good. John Isner, since he really hit his prime in 2015, has averaged a seventy about a 70.8% uh, first serve percentage. So for Opelka, I do still think that first serve is going to get more consistent, and we talk about the tools he can bring as an actual tennis player, he's already more effective with his first serve than John Isner. As you look for Riley Opelka, last season, he matched his career high 80.7 win percentage on the first serve points. He was actually 80.9 the year before, but for that metric to stay above the 80% mark, that is the elite of the elite. And look, his second serve win percentage still is isn't as good as John Isner's. And I think that comes back to the consistency. John Isner is a 70% make, uh, makes his first serve 70% of the time. When you're doing that, you feel comfortable hitting two first serves on back-to-back serves, even if you miss the first one. How many times have you seen Isner hit the second serve ace where he goes for it and succeeds because he has trust in his serve at this point? I don't think we see Riley Opelka have that degree of trust in his serve yet. And look, I want to talk about the return skills where I'm concerned about him. I want to talk about, uh, as you mentioned, across surfaces. I'm a little bit less concerned about him because I think on clay, on grass, the power he has just translates no matter what. He has that sort of firepower. But just you look at the improvements Riley Opelka has made already in his young career, plus the low-hanging fruit that exists for him to get even better at something as controllable as his first serve. Like, just statistic-wise, eye test-wise, Results-wise, I don't know how you don't buy Riley Opelka heading into 2021, and I agree with you. He is still the best shot for American men's tennis to win a Grand Slam simply because of all of the different things he can do.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, You know, and you say the power translates to these other surfaces. Uh, you know, I'm looking, looking a little further back than last year, which was a shortened season. He didn't get any clay. Uh, clay court time uh, you know there was no grass season and it almost had escaped me uh, I had forgotten he beat Vavrinka in uh, in London at at Wimbledon uh, and that was actually a second round match so he made the round of 32 there uh, and then lost to you know of course a fantastic grass grass court player in Milos Raonic. Um and then in on the in the clay season in some of the warm-up tournaments to Roland Garros, he he beat, uh, he beat PCB, Pablo Carreño Busta. Uh, it's a nice clay court win. Uh, PCB's not kind of your typical Spanish guy. I think he likes the hard courts just as much as he likes the clay, if not more. But still, that's a nice win uh, for big man Opelka on the clay. And uh, he beat Londero from Argentina, who's a clay court specialist and can play some good ball on the clay. And then he took Dominic Team to three sets in Madrid. Um, yeah, that, that's a nice result, even though it's not a win, that's a nice result. And then a couple weeks later, he took Christian Garin, uh, to three, or no, I'm sorry. Uh, he may not, what do you do there? No, he didn't. Uh, he didn't win a set against Garin <laughs> in Paris in, in, at Roland Garros, but he did take all three sets, uh, you know, to at least seven, five, he, so he lost seven, six seven, five, seven, six. So pretty, you know, something to build on at least. And I w- it would have been interesting to see him last year play a little bit more clay. Uh, of course, you know, the, the, the natural comparison is to Isner. As you said a little bit ago, Isner has one of his best grand slam results in Paris on the clay courts of Roland Garros, where he, he took uh, Nadal to fifth to five sets in a way that clay can help those big guys because it gives them more time to reach the balls. And their power, like you say, still gets through the courts. They still get aces, you know, no matter how slow the courts are, because you know the 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 court speed doesn't slow the ball down through the air. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, he 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 can play on all surfaces. I still think, obviously, uh, you know, hard courts are his court; Not that those are his best courts. But yeah, um, he he's definitely a buy, with the caveat that you know he's a big dude, and let's see how healthy he stays.
0: For me. No, it's fair. Last number rundown for all of you listeners. Again, this is according to Tennis Abstract. He's the number 25 player according to their ELO ranking over the last 52 weeks. He won the fourth highest percentage of points on serve last season, trailing only Raonic, Berrettini, and Isner. He, You look at his ace percentage, he was number four on that list behind Kyrgios, Isner, and Raonic. You look at his first serve win percentage, and again, that's the amount of points he's winning on his first serve. He is number, I believe two in that category behind Milos Raonic. So yeah, as a server, he continues to enter the ranks of the elite. Now, as a returner, things get a little bit more complicated he was second to last last season in terms of percentage of return points one you look at or excuse me that might be wrong was he said yeah you know, he was second to last ahead of only Nick Kyrgios tied I should say with John Isner now you look at some of the glaring numbers for Opelka he won only 24.3 percent of points on opponents first serves he won 40.5 percent only of points on uh, opponents second uh, serve now you look at his break percentage of 15 that's a little bit better than Isner and Kyrgios but I mean look that's not great it's, it's worth noting off the bat. That is obviously not great. And when you're keeping the company of the Isners, the, you know, Kyrgioses uh, of the world, they play so many tie breaks. That is an issue. But you look for Riley Opelka and his records in tie breaks over the last 52 weeks, and he's been getting a lot better. He has been fairly consistent with his results. believe he's 5-5 five and five in his last 52. But I want to say, and I'm looking this stat up as we go, I apologize. You look for him now. Oh, actually, he's about 500 in his tiebreaker results so I, I don't know as a returner the numbers are not great and yet when I watch Riley Opelka as a returner I just think he's a guy who the, those numbers are so bad because a when he gets his brink of serve he is shameless about tanking his opponent's service games and then b I think he's a guy who takes a lot of Cuts at the ball, and I'm not necessarily upset with that. Sometimes you get so frustrated with Isner because you're like, "Why did you chip another forehand?" Opelka doesn't chip the forehand. He he plays his game.
1: Yeah, he's an aggressive uh, returner, and I think it works out for him in a lot of ways. Um, you know, that's just a decision that, that he's made. It, like you say, it's different. It's a different approach than Isner has, and I mean, he knows he's not going to get into every return game. So why not take a big cut at it? If you make the first one or two, then you're into a return game. Maybe you can play a little more conservatively. I think that's the approach he takes to it, and I kind of like it. Um, And, you know, of course, his return uh, stats, you know, they're not there. He has big man return stats. He has big server return stats. If he had middle-of-the-road return stats, he would be a top 10 or top 5 player. Uh, And I just feel
0: like he has this skill set to be a middle-of-the-road returner someday. Like I just feel like a lot of it is shot selection, and a lot of it, again, is numbers tanked due to tanked service games. And it's just like when Riley Opelka needs to lock in, if he goes down a break or it's a tiebreaker, I do feel like he's a guy who is going to put the return in play, and you don't always feel that about John Isner.
1: Yeah, I agree. And uh, yeah, and, and I agree with you that he he has the potential to not be a terrible returner. And and that's that's why I think people are so high on him. He's not just that's a big, enough. He's not just a big serve. Uh, you know, a big serve can get you into the top 50, into the top 30 of the game. You know, you look at Dr. Evo, uh, Evo Karlovich. I don't know off the top of my head what his career high was, but I think he was in the top 20. And, you know, I mean, he's a serve and volley guy. Uh, he He's not just a serve, but primarily that's what he was. And that's what he is now. And uh, same with John Isner. And, you know, that is good enough to get you top 20, maybe, you know, skirting along the top 10. It's not good enough to be elite. You can't just have a giant elite serve. You have to have more if you want to do elite things uh, against the best players. And the reason why we, you know, a lot of people like Opelka is because they see that potential. I don't think he's there yet. You just ran ran off the numbers. Uh, But he could be. He's young. He's 23. Mm
0: -hmm. No, I mean, again, I I think we've made pretty clear. Unequivocal buy. Because the skill set is there. It's just about... You know, rounding off the shot selection, all of the things you want Riley Opelka to improve on are things that every player improves on through the course of their career. Assuming they are people who get better, and you just feel like with Riley Opelka, as his shot selection becomes better, as he becomes more mature throughout the course of the of a match, and of course off the court, uh, I think he has matured tremendously. But on the court, you still see the streaks of frustration. You still see the angry, you know, the sarcasm that you're just like, why are you this woe is me attitude sometimes from Riley where you're just like, dude, you don't need to do this. You are really good at tennis and you're a physical freak. Um... Yeah, I just unequivocal buy. Unequivocal buy. I agree with you. Well, someone we have talked about quite a bit in the comparison for Opelka is the next person I want to go to because he's been the stalwart of American men's tennis throughout the 2010s decade and really the past 12 years. A guy who, you know, is he going to be a Hall of Famer? Probably not. But if you ask any young player right now across the country, hey, you can have John Isner's career as a professional tennis player All of them would say yes, and you look at Isner now heading into this 2021 season. He's 35 years old, uh, currently ranked, I think, number 24 in the world outside of the top 20 for the first time. Since I want to say like 2011 or like 2010, something out there, something in that range. He's just been inside that top 20 for such a long time. Uh, but obviously, now uh, is just outside of that. And we saw him play in Delray Beach, beat Diego Monteiro, loses to Sebastian Corda. It was his second loss to Corda in two events. As Corda also knocked him off, of course, at Roland Garros. We saw Stevie Johnson knock off John Isner at the U.S. Open. Isner last year. his worst record on the ATP Tour since 2008. And look, it was a quarantine-condensed season. We didn't have the Atlantas of the world, the Newports of the world, where you know John Isner runs up that win total year in, year out. You can just pencil him in for an Atlanta singles title each and every season. Uh, But you look at John Isner, again, 35 years old, there are a lot of talented young players ascending the ATP rankings. You buying? You selling? Are you holding on Isner heading into 2021?
1: Look, I know that uh, probably the consensus is a, a sell at this point. He's 35. Uh, injuries are starting, you know, to crop up a little bit more. But for me, I look at I look at Ivo Karlovic, and um, you know those big guys. They just have they they have the potential to have a really long career because they do one thing elitely well and uh obviously J- big john isner does that he, he that serve you know won't go away anytime soon when he's 38 39 years old he's still going to be bombing him down the tee and uh you know his, his movement will will uh you know decline over time uh and we'll see about injuries but for me at least for the next couple years I'm still. I'm holding him. He's not a buy. I mean, he's too old to be a buy. I think at this point, point. Uh, and he's done probably his best. Uh, he's done. He's not going to probably not going to win another Masters one thousand. Um, you know, he's probably not going to win a Grand Slam. He probably never make a final. Uh, but he did make a semifinal, and uh, you know, he won a, a Masters. He made a final of another. And yeah, you know, like I agree with you. His his career with. All the young guys that we're talking about would take his career right now if you give him the opportunity. Uh, he's had a great career. I think he still has two, three, maybe up to you know five years of good tennis left in him. I think he can hang around top 50 for another two, three, five years if he stays healthy. So for me, uh, he's ranked 24th right now. I'm holding him because I think in, let's say, three years' time, he could still be ranked thirty five. Yeah, you know, if he stays healthy.
0: Well, again, three years from now, he's 38 years old. And for John Isner, he has a family now. He's made clear how important that family is to him being around them. But look, I mean, he, to your point, what about John Isner's game is not going to age well? The serve is just. It's so easy. It's so fluid. It's so casual. He, I think he has become a better volleyer at this stage of his career than he was when he was younger, a more willing volleyer, certainly uh, a guy who looks to hit the big return and move forward, a guy who, you know, spent a lot of his time quietly, six feet behind the baseline, slicing forehands back into the court and waiting for his opportunity to hit the big ball, but... I mean, 40 and 28 since the start of the 2019 season, that's not great. Like it, like it's fine, and I think if someone is offering you, you know, you look at his losses at the majors. Twenty nineteen first round loss to Riley Opelka at the Australian Open. At he didn't play the French Open that year. Uh, did play Wimbledon. Ended up losing to Kukushkin at the U.S. Open that year. Lost, I think, to Chilich in four sets. You look at what he did again in twenty twenty third round Australian Open. Had to retire uh, against Stan Wawrinka. First round exit at the U.S. Open. Second round exit at the Roland at Roland Garros. If someone offers you John Isner at a top 10 price, you sell it to them. You say, really? You want to pay me that for John Isner? Because I think those days are behind him. I think there are too many talented young players who, week in, week out, are just going to be so good, right? And anytime there's a New York Open or you know any of the indoor hard courts in Europe, John Isner's still a threat. John Isner's a guy who can absolutely make a run to a quarterfinal. The game looks that easy for him, but... I mean you see these multi-dimensional players, you I'm just going to read you some of Isner's last losses. Corda twice, Tsitsipas, Fritz, Umber, Medvedev, Rude, Garin, Tsitsipas again, all of those coming in the past year. The young guys have caught up. And like John Isner's a great litmus test for those young players. If you can problem solve, make enough returns, hold your serve comfortably enough to beat John Isner, You're ready to be a top 50 player, but that's what John Isner is right now at this point. He's a litmus test. He's your barrier into the top 25, and again, if you're asking me do I think he's got three more—do I think he will be in the top 50 as long as he wants to play professional tennis? Yes. John Isner is not a guy who will ever go down to the challenger circuit again. I think once he's done with the ATP events, he's probably done with his career. Uh, and he will be you know and he will have at least as you mentioned I think three more years feels about right barring some sort of injury but at best I'm holding if you're offering me John Isner stays as a top 20 player stays as the top ranked American male at the end of the 2021 season I'll sell you that
1: Yeah I agree with that I agree I don't think he will be US number 1 at the end of the season I think uh <clears throat> I think somebody will catch him you know, sometime during the year, if not, you know, more than one person. Um, but uh, yeah, I think he'll he'll stick around. It's a good point about his family, and uh, you know, John is a total professional. Uh, so there's going to be no doubt about it that he will be ready and willing to play for what ready to play as long as he's willing to play. Um, and if he's ready to play and he's not injured, he's a top fifty player. You know, for the next few years. Um, but yeah, how long does that last uh how long is he willing to to keep going out there you know week in week out travel away from his family uh, deal with the nagging little injuries that you you start to accumulate when you get into your mid and late 30s um so those are all things to to keep an eye on yeah it'll be interesting to see how long big is on the on the tour
0: yeah i mean again it's the home stretch. He'll have to win Atlanta at least two more times. But, you know, again, for John Isner, he has been the bridge player between whatever happened between the Andy Roddick generation ending and this next gen generation coming to fruition. He has been the guy. And, you know, it's been frustrating at times, but certainly he has been a bedrock, a guy who just week in week out. Okay, he's in a third round. He's in a fourth round. Oh, there's John Isner. And then yeah, he comes across a player who can make enough returns and is dynamic enough to get him out of his spot, but you know, certainly again, you're not going to find uh, many more consistent players during the 2010s decade than John Isner who just put top 20 after top 20 season uh up with his results. Uh, but I think we can move on with that one with Isner. That was one of the veterans we wanted to talk about. Let's go back to the next generation of guys, the Kalamazoo 14 crew, and talk about a player who, you know, anytime you talk about Riley Opelka, it's not going to take you long to mention his other half, Tommy Paul, and in Tommy Paul, uh, you have a guy who has finally stayed healthy long enough to, you know, sort of secure the place in the top 100 that all of us thought he would eventually reach, and you look for Tommy Paul you know, what have been the big results for him uh, over the past year for Tommy, the fact that he was able to play some Grand Slam main draws, right, may have lost first round to Grigor Dimitrov, but was able to win his first round match at Roland Garros, and then Played a really fun five set match against Casper Rude, maybe one of the most fun matches of that first week of French Open men's tennis. You look at what he was able to do. You know, played 28 ATP level matches last year, which is the most of his career. Went 15 and 13. And when you're going over 500, that's going to earn you a spot in the top 75. Tommy Paul, currently number 53 entering this uh, 2021 season. He's 23 years old. Uh, We got Got to see him play in Delray Beach as well it was a fun three-set battle that he ended up falling a little bit short in against Sebastian Corda. of course Tommy Paul a guy who has had success on hard courts on clay courts but it's about consistency for him a uh, week in week out do you think he finds that here this season you buying you selling you holding on Tommy Paul
1: uh Tommy Paul he's my my number one favorite player Although Sebby Cord is catching him quickly, but I love Mason Tommy Paul. I've been following his, the trajectory of his career for several years, uh, and I was—I've I've been on the Tommy Paul bandwagon, bandwagon for so long. When he was playing futures, uh, you know, when he was still kind of finishing up his junior career, and you could just see the athleticism. He was that guy in high school that could play every sport. You know, you pick up a football, he's your star quarterback. He's your, uh, he's your start point guard on the basketball team. Uh, you know, he just has that kind of athleticism, and it comes across on the tennis court. It's so fun to watch. Uh, you could see the talent. It was amazingly fun for me to watch 2019 happen for him, where he st- I think he started the year in the 300s. He won uh, a couple of those green clay challengers, or at least one of them. I think he made a final in another one. And that kind of shot him into the top 150 uh kept winning at the challenger level and then it and then it was it was really great to see last year 2020 it's a shame that the season was uh you know shortened because of covid because he played a full atp schedule and i loved to see it as to your question my heart wants to say bye but my head says hold on on tommy you know, for a couple different reasons. Uh, one is, although he has improved this aspect, uh, you know, probably a hundred percent over the past couple of years, his professionalism week in week out, you know, is still a uh, at least a slight question mark. Um, I think. Uh, he, oh, what's what's his coach's name? Do you know his coach's name
0: off the top of your head? It was Diego Moyaño. I don't think it no, is anymore. No, no, it's, it's not um, anymore. It's it's not TJ Pure. I know he hits with him. It's um. No, it's escaping my name, but yeah. I will look it up as okay. We talk. Okay, well,
1: when, once we get his name, I know who it is. He's a long-time uh, United States Tennis Association
0: Oh, Brad guy. Stein. Brad yeah, Stein. Brad, Stein. Brad Stein.
1: And in my opinion, one of the best coaches in the game. And he's worked wonders with Tommy, and I think that's a really big reason why you're seeing such a nice jump from uh, from Tommy in the rankings. Um, you know, But there's still that question mark for me. Is he professional in every sense of the word, week in week out? Which is what it takes to reach the top of the game. Right now, he is ranked uh, 52, I think, or, or thereabouts. And how much higher can Tommy go? I think he has the just the pure game and athleticism to get up maybe in the 30s, maybe the 20s. It's going to take. It's going to take a massive amount of commitment for him to make it higher than that, because. For him to make, for him to go higher than that, he will have to exceed. He will have to <clears throat> rely on more than just his athleticism, right? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, he'll have to rely on. <clears throat> he'll have to just make make a commitment that he's never made in his life. So, uh, you know, but the the game is there for him to increase that ranking. I don't know that I see him as an elite player ever uh so in my in my mind tommy kind of if he has a if he has the career that i think he's going to have he's going to be ranked you know from twenty five to maybe fifty five a large chunk of his career well he's already in that range right now, and so for me he's kind of a hold because I don't know that he i don't know that he has the willpower or maybe even the game to get up past you know maybe that top twenty mark to get into the top twenty what do you what do you think they're all
0: no they're all fair questions to ask and You know, I I think you fall for the Tommy Paul's really handsome spell, which it's just objectively true. That's a good-looking gentleman, folks. Um, And, yeah, because of that, everything he does... From there, I just feel like looks so easy. You're right, the movement around the court. It's why he's been so successful on both hard courts and clay in his career because that movement, uh, that athleticism transcends surface. And he's a guy who, you know, does sometimes the term I always turn, uh, turn to, and it's one uh, Virginia now head coach Andreas Pedroso used to always say is sometimes he's a guy who massages the ball, right? Where it's just like, why are you hitting that forehand, you know, so casually or that backhand so casually where you're just kind of, you know, deflecting? Reflecting the power of your opponent, and you know, using that power as opposed to generating your own. And then there are times when Tommy shows off that plus power when he'll snap a forehand or backhand down the line, or you know, show out that explosive first set, sneak to uh, first step, sneak to the net, and cut off a volley. He's a guy with good hands, and again, the serve, the kick serve, he can hit on the ad side. They're all little pockets of weapons, and. You know yeah you mentioned it he you know for him 2019 to win that Sarasota Challenger make the final in Tallahassee the next week then you know continue to have success in the fall winning challengers and I think the start of end of Febu- uh, of September excuse me in New Haven and Tiburon and to leverage that success I think he was 27 and 5 in challenger matches in 2019 and then you know we talked about this earlier in the show is Marcos Giron going to go play challenger events or is he going to go play ATP level events. Well, Tommy Paul made the decision to go play ATP level events, and again, 15 and 13, it's it's not top 10 quality, but it's going to keep you inside the top 100. It's going to give you opportunities to continue to compete at the ATP level, and I just think, yeah, for Tommy Paul. It's a guy who can do so many different things well that there's no one thing he does on the court. It's not as clear of an executed game plan match in, match out as it is for in Opelka or you know a guy like an Isner, a Jack Sock, just what they want to do each and every match. And so you know, oftentimes you feel like Tommy is playing at the speed or the rhythm of his opponents and. You know, that that gets frustrating because you're like, you don't need to do that. You can be the aggressor, and I think when you look at his stats you know, you're, you're pretty happy with everything. He makes about you know 60% of his first serves, which can continue to get better. He wins about 69, 70% of his first serve points, about 51% of his second serve points. All those numbers are pretty good. And then on the return of serve, you, you look at where he compares as a returner compared to some of the other players on tour in terms of his return points, one on the season. Let's see, where is Tommy Paul on this list? Tommy Paul, not ranked according to Tennis Abstract, but that's because I think he's outside the top 50. I will expand uh, that ranking a little bit, but he's a good returner, right? I think he's both someone we think. He's a guy who makes a lot of returns. It's the indecision. It's the... Again, a guy who can do a lot of things well can't do one thing extraordinarily well. And it's uh, very—the easiest comparison you can make for Tommy Paul as a pro is David Goffin, right? Because those are two guys who you could put them at a country club in anywhere in the United States, and they would just fit in perfectly. The smoothness, as you mentioned, it's like you've been the best athlete at everything you've done your entire life, and it just looks so effortless. Uh, But David Goffin has that discipline you talk about, point in, point out, that— Tommy has lacked at times during his career. And so that's the question. And to bet on Tommy Paul, if you're buying, selling, or holding, it has nothing to do with questions about his game. It has everything to do with questions about either his health or, you hate to say it, but his mentality. And, you know, having spoken with Tommy Paul, with the team he has around him, having a group of peers in Fritz and Opelka who are so driven, Fritz in particular, Taylor Fritz is going to become the best tennis player he can be no matter what. The question is, does Tommy Paul have that fire to him? Yeah,
1: totally agree. (sighs) I might
0: hold for twenty twenty one, but I buy long term. Sorry, go ahead. No, sorry
1: to cut in there. Uh, So, what was your what was what was the ultimate answer?
0: I probably I lean hold depending on the price. Like, is he a guy? I think he uh, he's not quite top fifty, so I think he gets into the top fifty and sticks there. I don't know if he's ready to be a top 30 player yet. Certainly he has the skill set. I don't think I would buy a top 30 price yet, but of course I would for his long-term future. If Tommy Paul doesn't crack the, crack the top 30, I will be surprised.
1: Yeah, I agree. Um, and and I would agree He's a for, that's the same reason he's a hold for me. You know, I think he's pretty close to where his natural ranking should be. Uh, it's going to take a lot of hard work, a lot of commitment to get up into that top 30. I think he can do it, and I think he probably will does he stay there? Who knows? Uh, but you, you know, with Tommy, you love the athleticism, you love the shot making, you love his bravada, you know? Um, you also love his surface variety. He won the junior grand slam or junior Roland Garros grand slam. Um, you know, and, uh, uh, he, there was that match, I think in 2019, he took Dominic team to four sets, uh, and, and had team in a little bit of trouble and team made the final that year. So he can certainly play on the clay. Obviously, he can play on the hard courts. I think he has the, the variety in his game to to have some success on, on grass, you know. Um, but it's the consistency, you know. It's the week in, week out, day in, day out consistency. He can beat the Zverevs and the Dimitrovs. He already has. Uh, but he can also lose to, you know, um, you know the run-of-the-mill guys, <clears throat> the Bednays. And, you know guys like that so uh, that's you know I think if he if he just demonstrates that commitment shows a little more consistency in his game I think Brad Stein's a great start let's see let's see how it keeps going you know he, he could be he could out uh, he could make us look look stupid you know um, and he might he might show up in the top 15 someday but uh, mm-hmm. I don't know I don't think he will ultimately and that's why he's a hold for me but I love I, him I love him
0: no, I agree with everything you said there. I think that's a good place to leave the Tommy well, Paul conversation. Well, hold on. Let's not, leave. Whole...
1: Let's not leave just Ooh. yet. I want to bring up one thing about Tommy oh,
0: Paul. Oh, see, again, this is why I brought you on. Give me the extra thing. <laughs> so, uh,
1: Tommy Paul, I was already a fan of his, but I became, you know, a super fan, a diehard fan. We, we mentioned that run last year in Sarasota, uh, a couple months after that i think it was in uh, tiburon uh you know over on the west coast of the u.s he was he won another challenger in like round two or round three of that challenger he had a dog fight with maybe uh you know hidalgo from argentina or whatever and uh, it went to a third set tie break i want to say and he won that match. It was like a three-hour match, grind fest. It was a Friday night. The crowd was into it. This was pre-COVID, you know. Mike C. Tennis was on the call. And uh, Tommy w- wins the, the match in a third set tiebreak, goes and shakes the guy's hand, his opponent's hand. And then instead of going over to the, the umpire to shake his hand, he goes the opposite way to the stands. And he sees a big, giant mug of half-drank beer sitting on the front step of the stands and he just takes it up and starts chugging from it. And you hear Mike, Mike, Mike Cation on the call on the challenger network, you know, uh, saying, and Tommy, Tommy Paul, he wins and, and, and he's going to have himself some beer (laughs) (laughs) and you just got to love it, you know? And he's like, well, it is Friday night. Might as well make it a party, you know? And, uh, that's just the kind of Tommy Paul is an entertainer. And I think we sometimes forget and the players sometimes forget that ultimately this is a game, this is entertainment, the fans want to be entertained. Tommy Paul, there's not anybody better than Tommy Paul at doing doing that.
0: No, he, again, there is something about his personality, there's a charisma, as you mentioned, that uh, you do just kind of want to uh, hang, or you just kind of want to watch him play, you want to watch him succeed, because he does seem to have this expression on his face that he enjoys the tennis. There's a what's, I don't want to say there's an innocence. That's the word I'm looking to. There's an innocence to his success, uh, that it it seems very enjoyable for all of us. Tennis fans So certainly again, we will be rooting, uh, for Tommy Paul here in this 2021 season, a slight hold, but lean towards buying long-term that's like, again, it's a long-term investment. I, I don't know enough about investing, and believe me. It the good news is my dad will never hear this, so he would be giving me a lecture. He's like, to hear you talk about mutual funds that way, Alex, that was so incredibly incorrect. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my God. I was like, Roth IRA, IRA, pay taxes now as opposed to later because you bet on the taxes going up later. And he's like, oh, that's pretty good, Alex. Yeah, yeah. Um, You'll have to get yeah, one of no, those
1: no. Uh, Reddit guys on, on the pod.
0: Yeah, no, I was negotiating Roth IRAs with Dalton last weekend. No, I'm just kidding. The day we have Roth IRAs, that means we've really made it. That means it's going to be me and Tommy Paul doing this podcast of (laughs) Buy, Sell, Hold on Tommy Paul. Um, But anyways, uh, another guy I want to talk about here, and this will probably be our last guy of part number one, Michael Moe, who you know, in terms of the age trajectory, the growth curve, you probably, if you are a long-term American tennis fan like I am, you considered, it would probably, you probably thought it would be Michael Moe before a Tommy Paul or a Riley Opelka or a Taylor Fritz, because for the longest period of time, and I always like to introduce this little piece of context, it was the 1998s, the Francis Tiafo, Stefan Kozlov, Michael Moe trio, that just seemed like the future of American men's tennis. Those guys were having so much success at the junior level at such a young age and of course the reason I call it the 2014 although it might have been the 2015 match was the Tiafo, uh versus uh, Kozlov final but that was the year that had Noah Rubin, Jared Donaldson, Ernesto Escobedo, Opelka, Isner, Paul, Moe, Fritz again Kozlov all of these guys making the quarterfinal rounds of Kalamazoo and it was simply sensational and I remember Tommy Paul, round of 16, was playing Oliver Crawford, who has had a bunch of success now on the ITF tour of late All-American at Florida, and I I always say it's the Spider-Man meme. They look at one another, and it's the same player, and just Tommy Paul was just that much better, and like, he was just like, okay, it's time for me to win the point, and you could tell there were just like nine or ten of these American juniors who you just felt like, oh, man. These guys could be top 100 pros. These guys feel particularly special, and Michael Moe has always been a part of that conversation. And of course, Michael Moe goes on, I think he was the winner of either the 2015 or 2016, I think it was 2016, uh, Boys 18's Kalamazoo title gets a main draw wild card into the U.S. Open and has played a couple of main draws of... Um, Grand Slams. In fact, I believe if memory serves me correctly, this will be Michael Moe's fourth Australian Open main draw in his past five seasons as he comes through qualifying here this year to ultimately reach the round of 128 at this year's Australian Open. You look at the win he had, too, considering Arthur Rinderneck just won himself another challenger title. Michael Moe knocking him off, uh, Julie and Danilo Petrovic to earn his way into the main draw. Michael Moe's a guy who's been top 100 before Judson reached number 96 in the rankings at the end of October. Of course, that result came on the precipice of a couple of challenger titles. He won them back to back in Columbus and Tiburon in September of 2018. You look for Michael Moe. This is as much a question about health as it is anything else, but you buying selling or holding on him entering 2021. Uh, the curious case of Michael Moe. um,
1: yeah, I uh, – I, I mean, you watch Mo play and, you know, you see so much potential. He is as muscular, as athletic as they get. Uh, for me, where he's at right now, he's ranked uh, 176. And you know, as you said, he's been in the top 100 when he was younger and then he had some injuries, fell out. And he's still working his way back at uh, 2019 – at the, the latter half of 2019 he started working his way back, won a challenger and then of course last year kind of would have been his year to try to get all the way back near that top 100 mark but there was no season or there was only half a season and Mo didn't particularly handle it all that well either uh, but as you say he looked great in AO qualifying, that's a great win over renderneck in uh, round 3 of qualifying to go down to Australia so we'll see him and down under, and I'm really excited to see what his draw looks like, who he ends up playing, maybe if he plays any of those warm-up events. Um, for me, where he's at, 176, I think, and I know he can be better than that, and, and and he has been better than that. So for me, he's, an, he's a buy. Uh, now, talking top 100 price, or much beyond that, top 75 price, I don't know. Uh, injuries... You know he'll have to he'll have to work on his body, um, stay injury free to to reach that point. Uh, a- another thing that I see when I watch Mo is that you know he's this he's this big muscular dude. Um, you know he looks like he should play with a ton of power. Sometimes he can, but he's he's oftentimes at least you know to my untrained eye he's not aggressive enough, and and it gets him in trouble. I guess he plays down to his competition quite a bit you know that's maybe why he's stuck around challengers for a while. Uh you look at many of his results going back the last 2 3 years. You know, he he, he almost always will get a a win or two in a tournament and then he'll bow out in the quarterfinals or you know uh the round of 16 make, make a semifinal and and come up against a guy that that he loses to. Uh you know and and so his his game he's athletic uh you know, he gets a lot of balls back in play. Um, but he, he either doesn't have the weapons or he doesn't use those weapons enough to make that next step to, to win those big semifinal matchups that you need to win to gain those critical ATP points, you know, to make that jump into the top 100, get out of the challengers, get into the, the ATPs kind of like Tommy Paul has done. Marcus Garon has done, you know, um, he hasn't quite done that yet. So, for me, he's a buy right now. If he were setting at, you know, one hundred in the rankings, he might be a hold for me.
0: I think that's a really good breakdown of where he's at. I would point out and why he's a buy for me. You look at the trend he's had over his past, really since the play restarted in August. You know, he win- gets a wild card, I believe, and wins his first round match at the U.S. Open before losing to Jan-Leonard Strouf. His next event is Roland Garros, where he qualifies and loses in the first round to pierre Hughes herbert But again, he qualifies there now. You know, towards the end of the season, he beat Nidovyevsov uh, in carry, but then had to withdraw against Chris Eubanks, he looked really good in that first match in carry. And for him to get healthy and start the season off in this way where he's winning three matches in a row, qualifying for the Australian Open, I think that's a really good sign for him entering this season because we've seen it before at the end of 2018 or even I think it was the start of 2017 or 2018. I want to say it was the start of 2018 because I believe we had the podcast by then uh, where he made, I want to say, quarterfinals of his first ATP 250 event was either Adelaide or one of those Australian warm-up events. I remember him beating Misha Zverev, I think, if memory serves me correctly. Uh, And you know, we've seen him make runs like this before. It's just, to your point, He's a guy with an incredible physical skill set. You're not going to find a better mover in all of tennis than Michael Moe. You're not going to find a more explosive first step or just the power he produces on that first serve. And yet, with all of that power, with all of that you know bluster, he's still, I think, for his career, like a. Like he wins like only sixty like seven percent of his first serve points. It just feels like that number should be in the seventy percent range. And he's a guy who floats a lot of second serves. Has won only I think forty eight point eight percent of his second serve points in challenger level matches. Only forty five point seven percent of his second serve points in ATP level matches. And you look for him, you know, how has he uh, fared in his career on the ATP tour? He's nine and nineteen, and I do think that's when some of that passiveness his willingness to sit 12 feet behind the baseline it comes back to bite him a bit in the ass now the flip side to that is you know he is someone I think who very much as you mentioned plays to the level of his competition if you're hitting the ball big Michael Moe is going to absorb that pace and redirect it right back at you and he I mean the backhand. I really like the way it's very condensed. Again, he's able to drive through it. I think he can hit the ball down the line and cross. I think what he wants to be aggressive with his forehand, he can. Although that's the side that's more prone to errors. He's become better at volleying. It used to lo- it used to look like he was allergic to the net. Still not great at it, but I mean it's the physical profile, right? You just see him, and you're, you you see a guy who, if he can put it all together is is too mentally tough on the court, right? Makes too many balls and then has such a physical skill set that if he can just hone in the serve as a weapon or just hone in some sort of plus one combo, you could see him getting to the top 100 because everything else is there.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I follow, uh, in addition to tennis, you know, I follow college sports quite a bit and um, uh, college football, college basketball. And, you know, he's, he reminds me of a guy that, you know a football program might take a might take a shot on um that you know he just this physical specimen but he hasn't ever played football or he's only played football a few a couple years you know uh but you they can see that if they get this guy in their strength and conditioning program and they get him you know playing football day in day out he could eventually uh they could eventually polish him into a great football player he kind of reminds me of that you know he you can see it that you can see the potential there and uh you know he when he was a little younger before his first kind of rash of injuries came along he was starting to he was starting to make good on some of that potential he made top 100 um not just anybody makes you know top 100 especially at a young age um but uh <clears throat> you know he still has still has work to do uh coming back from that injury but you can just see it if he puts it all together like you say um, the the potential there I mean he's top 50 kind of guy if if things go as well as they can go and right now he's down around 200 so what's not to buy about him you know I think
0: mm-hmm. I I agree I just think that 200 range that's too low for him yeah. he is yeah. a guy who should be closer to the top 100 who it should never be a question of is he going to get into Grand Slam qualifying the question is is he going to get into Grand Slams on his own ranking and Look, sometimes it takes a little bit longer for all of the pieces to come together, and I think for Michael Moe, he's put the pieces together, it's just immediately once he does, it's halted by some sort of nagging injury, some sort of quad pull, or some sort of, you know, uh, hamstring issue, or the back, or the shoulder, and it's just, he hasn't been able to play six consecutive months of tennis, and it feels like three, four, five seasons, it really since 2018, and that's because of a pandemic, it's because of injuries, it's because of a bunch of different things, but when I watch him play, and I got the chance to watch that Rinderneck Neck match during the Australian Open qualifying, and I just, you know, I think in that Rinderneck Neck match, by the way, he blew like a 5-2 lead in the second set, and he'll do that at times where he just gets a little bit passive and the foot gets off the gas, or he just starts playing six feet behind the baseline mode, and he's going to need to phase that mentality out of his game if he is going to be a consistent top 100 player. But again, it's just the complete package. You watch him when his first serve is landing, you think to yourself, okay, like this guy should hold 90% of the time. And with the way he can make serves, it's not, you know, the way, or excuse me, how many returns he puts in the court. And just, you know, the way his movement seems to translate across surface. Although I will point out, according to Tennis Abstract, 15 and 19 in his career on clay which is not superb but then again you look he's made a couple of quarterfinals or better at the challenger level he did qualify for Roland Garros last year I think he's going to be really good on hard courts and clay unsure currently on grass we'll see Uh, but I'm a a believer I'm buying in Michael Moe I think Michael Moe makes a big jump here in 2021 if he can stay healthy but I guess we've been saying that for the past few yeah. years.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I I hope he does, uh, cause he's a fun guy to watch, and like like we've been saying, the the potential just kind of oozes out of him. And you know how strong really is that twenty two to twenty four year old class of of Americans. You know, we were talking at the beginning of the hour about uh, you know the 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 olden days of Amer- American tennis bleeding into you know the desert that is American tennis in the 2010s with uh with John Isner as your top player for so long I mean no no disrespect to John Isner but from what we were uh to what we have become uh but then you you know this this group of guys really they there's so many of them they all have a lot of potential I don't know if any of them are the answer you know the answer to go win a grand slam title become number 1 I doubt that but they are the answer to replenish the stock of strong Americans in the top 50, top 100, you know, you have Fritz, all in the same age range, Fritz, Opelka, Tommy Paul, big foe, JJ Wolf, a couple years younger, but he's right there. He's 22. Uh, Chris Eubanks, Maxime Cressy, the French American, uh, Ulysses Blanche, Michael Mo, uh, Ernesto Escobedo. I mean, all those guys have top 100 potential. Um, you know, so they, that's the group of guys along with, and you know, we got a good group of juniors. We got the Korda age bracket. Um, so the, you know, the future is looking a little brighter here. Mm-hmm.
0: No, that's why I call them the fourteen Kalamazoo crew, and people will know that. That was when it felt like that Kalamazoo. You're like, wow, we have eight, nine guys here born in that ninety six to nineteen ninety eight, ninety nine range. Who it feels like at least one of them should become a top 20 or better player. And it does feel like they're going to deliver at least on those expectations. Hopefully they can all stay healthy again here uh, heading into the 2021 season because I agree with you. I mean, all of these guys. They've all got different things that you can latch onto if you're an American men's tennis fan. Even the guys a little bit older, right? I swear to God, there's still a world where Ernesto Escobedo regains his form from 2017-2018 and gets back in the top 100. If Gerald Donaldson is ever healthy again, he was a guy who was in the top 50 and it's just like Noah Rubin obviously was a 96er. He was the guy who won the first Junior Slam when he beat Kozlov in that three-set Junior Wimbledon final and it's just just, you know, for all of these guys, they've come so close for so many different reasons. And for Michael Moe, you just feel so bad that injury's been the biggest barrier to him uh, living out his potential, living out or reaching, I should say, his potential as a tennis player right now. Because you can just see the talent; it's so evident whenever you watch him play. So, hopefully, again, uh, Michael Moe is a guy who is able to stay healthy and puts together big results here during his 2021 season. hope all of you enjoyed part one of my conversation with Judson Wall, buying, selling, and holding some of our most interesting American men's tennis players entering the 2021 season. Again, we will be back with part two of this conversation tomorrow. And then, don't worry, for all of you wondering, are we going to do something similar with the American women? Of course we are. I'm going to be joined by former WTA media man and now free agent, I believe, no worker, for Tennis.com. I want to say David Kane going to be joining me on the show tomorrow, or I suppose early next week, but Joining me in reality tomorrow, we'll play it for you early next week to talk about the American women, do a similar exercise. So again, trying to sneak in a little bit of preview content as we get ready for all the action to uh, transpire. If you have missed anything from the first month in the tennis world, go catch up on all the action by going to our website, CrackedRackets.com. Like, rate, subscribe, review, of course, this podcast, The Great Shot Podcast, Cracked Interviews, Inside Out, and The Sideline Podcast as well. Go subscribe to our YouTube channel so you don't miss any of our coverage if you missed our college tennis red zone covers this past weekend uh, we had a ton of fun and actually you can go re-watch it all on the channel so you want to go watch virginia knock off ohio state you want to go watch ucla give usc a real run for their money go check out that youtube channel of course the more immediate updates twitter instagram facebook youtube we are at cracked rack you want to message me directly i'm at great shot pod shout out as always to the super producers max fligner and daniel westoff for the of an inning job they do day in day out shout out as well to our friends at Midwest Sports go to MidwestSports.com use that promo code CR15 to get 15% off your order and let them know that we sent you there but with that in mind for my wonderful guests Judson Wall our super producers Max Fliegner and Daniel Westoff our friends at Midwest Sports and all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network I'm your host Alex Gruskin you know what we say folks that's the break and we will see you all tomorrow thanks everyone